Hey, hey, welcome. Disability Law Show. Good to have you uh, on with us. John Scholes here. Tamara Gopian, courtesy Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP. You want to reach out to Tamara and her team anytime to discuss uh, your matters. Could be for yourself, friend, colleague, family member. Might be more of a uh, something, a chat you want to have in private, which is fine. You can do that. one 855 is the, way, uh, the email address you can go to. We'll see if we can get to a few of those today. In fact, we will after we uh, start our chat. And you also have the uh, the addition of mydisabilityquestions.com. That is free and anonymous, kind of like sending an email, but you get, a, you get an answer right there on the site. So uh, again, you can do that without fear of anybody uh, reading your question or otherwise responses are uh, are done quickly as well my disabilityquestions.com also searchable database right so maybe a question like yours has been asked and answered in full previously saving you some uh, some time we'll get to our emails shortly here tomorrow but we always start off with uh, a week that was something that's been happening uh, on your end pal what's going on well it's been uh, you know a minute because we had a little <laughs> yeah. bit of a lull uh, right around the beginning of the new year. And yeah. so uh, it's been interesting. And I wanted to start off the show talking about a couple of things. The first of which is a shout out to my family. We finally, you know, in this post-COVID world, ended up having a little bit of an, a greater extended group. And John, the reason I bring this up is because inevitably people talk to me about our shows. And, you know, I've had such an amazing reception uh, from extended family members who have seen, you know, the, the TV show, the radio, they go on our website. Um, and so all of the intro that you provided to us, John, is so helpful for individuals because it really is getting out there and it pleases me to no end because this is truly the goal. Legitimately, folks, if you're listening, we just want to get information out there. And if we can help people with their disability matters, all the better. And so I had this really positive reception and I thought, you know what, I'm going to start off our show just talking a little bit about that and the different tools that we provide, the knowledge, and of course, ultimately, you know, free consultations. That's really what it comes down to is that we're happy to speak with people at any point in time in their disability claim, absolutely free, just to get a little bit of the lay of the land because so many people, John, don't know how to navigate the disability insurer, their claim, what do I do? The adjuster's saying this, the insurance company's saying that, you know, my doctor's saying something different. What do I do in situations like this? So look, I'm thrilled, so, so happy that people are listening, that we're getting out there. Uh, and I want to invite people to continue to do so because this is really what is the core of the work that we do at Sam Firo to Markin. So that leads me into a nice segue as to what actually is on the hot burner, the front burner this week for me, and that's a mediation that I've got coming up. And so for those who might not know what a mediation is, it's a non-binding settlement meeting. In other words, there's no judge. It's not in a courtroom. In fact, you know, we've been doing most of these virtually with the insurance companies and we get together with their lawyer and their representative with our client uh, and myself, of course. And we hammer out the issues that we've got in respect of the disability claim with a goal of trying to resolve it. Really, really effective way in getting resolutions for these claimants and uh, getting these litigated claims closed. And sometimes, frankly, we do it much faster than, you know, these poor individuals having to appeal and all sorts of other things, which we'll probably talk about later in the show. But in terms of this specific mediation that I've got coming up, it raises a really interesting uh, issue, both legally and from a disability 
health perspective. It involves an, an individual who has a progressive health issue. What does that mean? It's a health issue that has gotten worse over time, is permanent, so it's not going to get better, it's not reversible, and the treatment uh, protocols that are in place are really just to manage the symptoms. But it's not like that my client went from you know, working and functioning one day to totally disabled the next day. And I can tell you that in his particular condition, it's Parkinson's actually. So if those who know Mm. what Parkinson's is like, it's a, you know, slow, it's slow progression, neurological deficits. And so, you know, he was working for quite some time, uh, quite capably, and then was accommodated for a number of years at work with his different um, limitations. A lot of it had to do with computer work, dexterity, because, you know, with Parkinson's, you've got uncontrolled movements as one of the conditions. Long story short, uh, he ultimately was uh, terminated from his employment around the time where he was actually contemplating initiating the disability claim. So he hung on with his employer only to get the boot, terrible, uh, but also to try and facilitate getting his disability application and forms in and so on. And the insurer took the position that you know, because he was working right up to his termination, that he didn't qualify, that he was still capable of working. Uh, There's a coverage issue. There's a whole host of things going on. But the conclusion was that they never paid him his disability benefits. And with a condition like this, time is not a good thing. Um, It's not a good thing for uh, the claimant, most certainly, especially when he's going without his disability benefits. But it's also not great for the disability insurer. And here's why. The courts have agreed, in fact, that you can qualify for disability benefits even while you are working in a context of a progressive disability claim. And so I certainly, John, don't expect the adjuster to have known this necessarily. Still, poor decision making. I think the insurance company is exposed absolutely. But I can assure you that their lawyers know the law. (laughs) Like, well, hopefully they will. If they don't, I'll educate them. But um, I certainly know the law on issues like this. And I can assure you that my client's claim is compensable. There are benefits that are owing to him, even in the circumstances where it was a slow progression of his disability claim. And so there are, I think, quite a few other types of disabilities that fit into this category. It doesn't need to be as definable as Parkinson's disease. We deal with people with chronic pain and chronic fatigue, for example, where it gets worse over time. It also is progressive by its very nature. And so if you're listening and your insurer is resisting your disability claim, you know, be it coverage, be it because you were able to work for a period of time with accommodation at work, and therefore, you know, they deem you not totally disabled, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily the end of the line. And I have a pretty good feeling that we're going to be able to get a a successful resolution for our client when we come down to the mediation. I mean, it's, it's privileged, it's without prejudice, you know, it allows the insurer to take positions in the, in the cone or veil of, of privacy and confidentiality that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise uh, were it to be a trial or a court. But there's a reason for that too, John, is because I think that they cannot necessarily stand before a judge or a court and say, hey, you know, we stand behind our decision, even though we know there's a whole bunch of other cases that are exactly like this one where the courts have said that benefits are payable. 
And always, again, reaching out based on that story. If you're having issues and you're uh, you're confused, because it could be you know scary waters to navigate for sure. Reach out to Tamar anytime. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred is how you go about doing that. As mentioned, you can email us here in the show today or otherwise moving forward. Always get answered. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Tamar's got a, a wonderful team doing that part as well. Uh, let's get to our first one. Uh, Tamar Mark says, "Hey guys, my doctor believes I'm ready to return to work, but with restrictions and on a." part-time basis after speaking to my boss he doesn't think he can accommodate my requests if i lose my job am i still unable to work and and still unable to work full-time will my benefits be cut off oh good question mark good question Mm. and so this is one where i find really intriguing because it touches on not only the disability work that we do john but also the other side of our practice and our firm which is employment law And you can see with Mark's email how closely linked both those areas of law can be. And so myself and some others on our team actually specialize in both areas. And so I appreciate Mark's email because it actually has two components to it. Focusing on the disability side first, though, uh, of course, since this is the disability law show, you know, I think that there could still be exposure on the disability insurer to continue to pay disability benefits because the test of total disability, you know, it, it's a misnomer, right? It, it doesn't mean total as in you cannot do anything and you're laid up perpetually all the time. Right. Uh, that's not what the courts have said is total disability. It really is a question of whether or not Mark can do the essential duties of his own occupation at, or depending where he's at you know, on his claim, if it's any occupation. And so essential duties don't mean all the duties, right? And so I think that the devil really is in the details in Mark's situation as to what the doctor, his own doctor, is recommending is his capacity to work. And what he tells us in his email is that he's able to return. So he's been given the green light from his doctor to return, but only on a part-time basis with continued restrictions. And so could that still allow Mark to be entitled to LTD benefits? Yes. I actually have a couple of clients like this who have a partial work capacity and that work capacity is well-documented. The doctors are supportive. The insurers were actually aware and paid for a period of time. And then as they often do, get impatient and start cutting off claims. And so my concern with Mark is that could he be cut off in a situation like this? That's what he's asking us. And I have to tell you, unfortunately, you could be if it's not clear enough that, you know, there's the restrictions still prevent Mark from continuing to work, you know, at a at an own occupation or any occupation level. And usually, John, you know, that could be anywhere between 60 percent, 50 percent, 65 percent. It's in that range, but it's certainly not at 100 percent. And it sounds to me like, you know, this he, Mark's profile fits into that realm. The other element, though, of what he's talking to us about is that his boss feels that he, you know, they can't accommodate him. Well, well, that troubles me it's, as well. From an employment perspective, the employer does have a duty to accommodate you, Mark, to the point of undue hardship. Now, mm-hmm. it's not a hard and fast rule. The medical details around the restrictions will be important, but your boss can't simply say no. They have to try and engage with you meaningfully in trying to get you into a role or a position that would accommodate those restrictions and limitations. So 
if there's ongoing questions and issues, Mark, at least on the employment side, I think that, you know, I would suggest a dedicated employment consultation. But certainly from the disability side, I would make sure that you've got clear medical information to the insurer, wait to see how they respond, coordinate with them. And if there is still an element of a top-up claim that could be payable there, then by all means, I think it is one that would be a good one to take on to ta- challenge the insurer, especially if the doctors are saying this is going to be, you know, a prolonged period with a partial work capacity. Mark, appreciate the note, pal, and uh, you know how to move forward with this one for a further discussion. Same number I've been given out, and we'll continue for the remainder of the hour, right? one 821 5900 That email address, help at disabilityrights.ca, and I did mention mydisabilityquestions.com. That is where we're going to go next, but we've got to take a short break here on the Disability Law Show. Lots more is on the way, so stand by. All right, welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes, Tamara Gopian here, Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP. Do not hesitate to reach out any time to the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. How do you do it? one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca for quick and concise non-legalese written uh, notations and information on LTD, a, a whole gamut of topics, easy to navigate. It's like Lego, ltdfaq.ca. You can use that website. But uh, tomorrow, I want to go to mydisabilityquestions.com. We love this resource as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it was built a, uh, a couple of years ago by Savan and you and the rest of the team. It's a place for people to ask questions anonymously. It's searchable, so maybe their question or one similar from someone else, a listener, has uh, has asked it before, so you can save some time doing it that way. But again, mydisabilityquestions.com says, I have been on LTD for almost two years due to depression and anxiety and fatigue. I followed all recommendations from the doctor and insurance company. They would like to send me to an occupational therapist. I'm unsure this will help as I'm still unable to do my job. Can I be forced to try any type of job if they feel I should? I'm nearly 60 and feel very stressed about trying something new. Thank you. Really, really good question. And so there's a lot going on here in this uh, note. So I appreciate the note. Uh, And I think it's an important, a couple of important topics. The first of which is this. If the insurer is requesting that you go see, in this case, an occupational therapist or some other specialist, I think it's important for individuals to understand that a lot of the times the disability policy says, yeah, you got to go. Okay. Uh, Not always. Uh, But even when it doesn't, it doesn't bode well to resist the insurer's efforts to try and, quote unquote, adjudicate your claim. In other words, there is a mutual duty there, right? The insurer has a duty of good faith and transparency and so on. But you as a disability claimant also have a duty to cooperate with their efforts to figure out, look, you know, is the monthly benefit payable? Is there a way here that we can get this individual back into a work setting that analysis is an ongoing thing, unfortunately, sometimes more aggressively than others, and frankly, sometimes un- more unfairly than others. But at the end of the day, I find if people just sort of put up a barrier and say no outright, they're just leading to a situation where their benefits may be cut off prematurely. And so at least out of the gates, I don't have a lot of hesitation in asking individuals or encouraging individuals to participate in that process of the assessment. I tend to agree. I mean, look, if this individual has depression and anxiety and fatigue, I'm not sure the occupational therapist is really going to get you very far. But if the insurer has questions they want answered or addressed, then you as a claimant should not only participate, but understand what those are. So that's the second part of this is that I think it's important to really 
press the insurer, get the adjuster to commit to why is it that they're asking for this particular assessment? What's the goal? What are they trying to get answered? And could those answers be provided actually by your own treatment team? Because that's really the most important part is to have your own treatment individuals, doctors, therapists, and so on, supporting the disability claim, providing up-to-date detailed information about ongoing disability so that the insurer not only doesn't have any lingering questions, but also can't ignore your own doctors and their analysis. They may, John, we talk about that all the time. I mean, it's a reality of poor adjudication by these insurers, but at least it's front and center. It's avail- You've made it available to the insurance company. The third part of this is this idea of doing another job. So we're asked, you know, I'm unsure, you know, I'm nearing 60. I'm really stressed about this idea that if they tell me there's other jobs that I could do, do I have to do them? And in fact, what we learn is that this individual is actually nearing that two-year mark, that mark where we see a lot of people get cut off from their disability claims. And frankly, you know, people even in their 60s are not, you know, immune to this, unfortunately, even though most disability policies only pay people till 65. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm 60, I've got maybe five years left on this disability policy. My health is not getting better. Surely I can rely on my insurance company to continue paying my LTD benefit. No, John. If they can save a year, two, three years, they will do that. They'll do that math and figure, you know what, you're not going to pursue it. It's, you know, we can close out the claim and not have to issue that disability benefit, sadly. Okay. And it's not right. Uh, And this is why we do what we do. Uh, But in a situation like this, when you are nearing that change definition, when it's the time where the insurance company has to do an analysis on whether or not you're totally disabled from any occupation, in any work setting, in any capacity, they will take a hard look at your education, your training, work history. They'll look at your current health restrictions, what's going on, what's the prognosis, the projection of where you're going to be. And they will take all of that and do an analysis to whether or not, in fact, there are alternative occupations that you're capable of doing. And they'll take the age part of it out of the equation. And and sometimes I got to wonder about that, frankly, John, because I do see a lot of people who've been in the same job for 20 years. And then all of a sudden the insurance company is saying, do something totally different. Um, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make <laughs> sense oftentimes. Um, and, it, and it is a good breeding ground for disability lawyers to challenge the insurers on this basis. But I absolutely am empathetic with the stress around having to go through this. So I get it. It is a process. The insurer will be on that path. They are looking for opportunities to close out the claim. And all I could encourage is cooperation with that effort and ensuring that you've got up-to-date information to the insurance company about ongoing health issues. And if they do make the the bonker decision of actually cutting you off at that phase, then do know that you do have rights and an opportunity to pursue those rights, not in an appeal, not with further thoughts around, okay, how can I convince the insurance company? but actually getting some hired guns. And that's what we are to some extent, right? Yeah. Actually getting, you know, sophisticated lawyers who understand uh, the lay of the land, these policies, you know, how the law works in the context of this and actually moving that needle with the insurer in a very effective and efficient way. And as I said, you know, even with individuals in their 60s, 
know, sometimes those claims are even easier to resolve, John, because, you know, we don't have a long period of time into the future to talk about with a disability insurer. And oftentimes the analysis doesn't make a lot of sense to try and put an individual who's been in the same work setting for decades into a totally new work setting with a whole host of health issues that would prevent them possibly from getting in the door and past the interview phase anyway. So sometimes the insurer will, in that case, when you bring the fight to them, they'll say, okay, I mean, this, this person's almost 65, it's not going to last much longer anyway, and they and they acquiesce, or you're using it for a bigger fight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that when it's relatively straightforward, then absolutely the fight doesn't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, they're not going to stand before a judge at a trial three years from now um, when this person's health issues likely have gotten worse over time, uh, right? And they're beyond the expiry of the disability uh, policy and stand before a judge or a court and say, yeah, you know what? We were right back back when this guy was or this woman was 60, you know, we were right to cut them off because they could have done some other job, um, you know, that was completely misaligned with their, you know, health history and their you know work history. So, you know, I think that it does take, though, that step sometimes to get the insurer to get real. I think that there is a bit of a disconnect between what's happening sometimes with the adjudication of these claims, that the adjusters, the frontline people trying to close out these claims at any cost, and then what ends up happening when we get involved and we start the legal claim and we start to press these kinds of issues and really put the law front and center to the insurer to say, are you really going to take this on? It doesn't make any sense. And so there are some practicalities around it, but really effective ones because we are successful in getting results for our clients. We're able to achieve something that they simply weren't able to do, unfortunately, in dealing with that adjuster firsthand. And you know, I think that there is value in not necessarily giving the insurer a pass. Even if you've only got about five years left on your policy, you are entitled to those benefits. And I never like to leave, uh, you know, allow people to leave money on the table. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Again, reaching out, guys, anytime you want to send along an email, help at disabilityrights.ca. It might not appear in a show, of course, but it will be answered by Tamara and her team. And the phone number to reach uh, Tamara at the office, too, is one 821 5,900. Okay, Jody, you're up. Jody says, hey, tomorrow I worked for a company that had a union. I became disabled and was off work when our contract was still in negotiation. When the contract was settled, uh, they backpaid the employees to a time when I was still at work. Should my LTD formula be adjusted to include this increase? I, I like this question, Jody. I like it a lot because it talks about a couple of technical things. Um, number one is this idea of being unionized. Uh, and we occasionally talk about this, John, but I can't say it enough that there's a whole host of unionized people that we can actually assist. And so sometimes what happens is people are unionized and they don't realize that they can actually get their legal rights for disability benefits helped by an external lawyer. So they go to their union first and the union will say, hey, you should just appeal, appeal this decision. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, then they're in the quagmire of the appeal. And so what ends up happening is people will try to persuade the disability insurer through this internal appeal process to try and get their benefits approved with or without the union's help. This is the other thing is that the union just tells them to appeal, but doesn't necessarily support their members consistently anyway in the process of doing so. So a lot of people don't know what to do. They wait for months and months to get a response. 
very frustrating. Uh, you know, I have some very strong views about the appeal process, but just in the context of Jody's situation, you know, I think that I have a hard time with the idea of her not necessarily getting the tools that she needs from the union about what to do in this process. Because the other part of her question, the key part is, you know, if my salary has changed and has been backdated, what does that do to my LTD benefit? So the LTD disability benefit really gets calculated based on the specific provisions of each disability policy. What does that mean? It's all contractual, right? So there's a contract in place, usually between the insurance company and your employer, typically, the group plans are typically set up that way. And in there will be, this is how you calculate, you know, your LTD benefit. And so it's important that individuals review the policy or get a copy of the policy so they can understand what that calculation is because that translates to cold, hard dollars, right? So if the insurer has not properly calculated your LTD benefit, you want to make sure that you get that right so that you're not losing money basically month over month where your benefits are payable. And if you're not sure, well, then you should be asking your adjuster, hey, adjuster, can you send me the calculation of my LTD benefit? Some insurers will actually include it, John, when they approve the claim, they'll put it right at the beginning where they'll say, okay, this is what we've assumed your monthly earnings are. This is the percentage of your LTD benefit, which usually is about two thirds of what you're making, 66.67%, something like that. And then they'll put out there as well if it's a taxable or non-taxable plan. But the key is what is that monthly earning, the basis of the earnings for which you are insured? And some employers will underreport, or some employees can be both salary and commission or all commission. So it is important, in fact, to really get into the weeds around how your LTD benefit is being calculated. And if there's an improper calculation, you want to make sure that you raise that early on with your insurance company so that you're not out of time to do that, right? Because if it gets to a point where they cut off your claim in a couple of years, and you've accepted these payments for a number of years and they haven't been paid and so on, then you might not have the recourse, the legal recourse to actually raise it later on. So you don't want to just agree. It's called acquiescence. You don't want to agree to what it is necessarily that the insurer is saying on the calculation of your LTD benefit. And in Jody's situation specifically, I think that there is a valid conversation that needs to happen between her employer and the insurance company about back payments and the adjustment of that basis of earnings that happened later on and perhaps adjusting her LTD benefit accordingly, especially if it's at a higher earning. I suspect though, Jody, that the insurance company is going to say, we it was a set in time moment. So at the time that you were disabled, you were earning X and that is the basis upon which we calculated the LTD benefit. So I don't think the grandfathering will work for the LTD benefit because I know insurers and I've read a lot of policies and a lot of them will say it's at the time of your disability. But it doesn't hurt to ask. It's an important one. And if it means more money at the end of the day for your disability benefit, you want to make sure that you get to the bottom of it. With that, we will take another short break up out of uh, your more of your emails and your contacts through mydisabilityquestions.com. But in the meantime, here's that number to keep anytime and call Tamar and her crew, 1-855-821-5900. We continue more Disability Law Show. Stand by.
All right. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Disability Law Show every week here. John Scholes along with Tamara Gopian. Tamara Gopian, of course, lawyer, Sam Fury, Tamara and LLP doing all the heavy lifting, always willing to help you out and just have that conversation to clear up confusion, pain, panic, and strife, whatever else the insurance company's throwing at you that you don't want to deal with alone, nor should you. You should always, uh, always reach out. 1-855-821-5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and then mydisabilityquestions.com free and open resource for you and anonymous to ask your questions for tomorrow and her team as well. In that regard, next one is this tomorrow. The adjuster on my case wants me to release all of my GP notes and all appointments for the last year. I told him I was not comfortable with this on the phone and he agreed to send a questionnaire instead. But in his follow-up email, the adjuster requested the entirety of the medical records again do I have to release anything or everything? Again, another really good question. And so my inclination to this one is possibly yes. I think wow. more information to the dis yeah, more information to the disability insurer, I think, outweighs the resistance around, look, I don't want the insurance company to know everything. I think that the idea of trying to limit what the insurer sees that's relevant to your health could at the end be more problematic than just having the full disclosure and explain away anything that could be, um, you know, concerning. I think where we find this issue most often, John, and, and I can't tell from this question if this is the case, but more often than not, I find with mental health claims, for example, there's, you know, some concerns around full disclosure of counseling notes. Even counselors and therapists, for example, may have policies about disclosure, and so they will require specific consent um, from the patient before this kind of information is shared with the insurer. And I think that I want to contextualize what I'm saying. The context is this. If it is a mental health claim and the insurance company is saying, look, we don't have enough information here to continue paying your benefit, then having those counseling notes and records could actually be very helpful in having your benefits continue to be paid. Alternatively, it may be more helpful to have a covering letter or report from the therapist or the doctor even explaining what's happening from a health perspective and then enclosing the clinical notes and records. So if you're specifically concerned about something that's in those records, and I'm not sure if that's the source of the concern or if it's just a general discomfort, but if there's something specific, it can be explained away by your doctor, of course, and it's very easy to do that in a covering note if it's of concern. But generally speaking, if it's relevant to the overall picture of disability, then I would not want to not have the insurance company have that information, right? Sort of talking about it as a negative from a negative, but Think of it alternatively, if the insurer ends up making a decision that there's not enough support for your disability claim, there's insufficient evidence, there's not enough treatment, and all of these things, by the way, are tied to releasing that disability benefit month over month, then you're only hurting yourself at the end by having you know, prevented the insurer from having all of this information. The other context to that, I suppose, is why? I want to know why the adjuster was satisfied with the questionnaire at the beginning, but then also made the follow-up requests for the clinical notes. Was there something in that questionnaire that led him or her to seek the full record at that point? I mean, there could be, and I don't think there's a lot of harm in asking those questions so that you as a claimant also have that context. And you can have that discussion with your own medical team, your practitioners, 
around, look, this is what the insurer is looking for. You know, you put this or that in the questionnaire, and this is why they're asking for the clinical notes. So being comprehensive about what you're providing to the insurer, very important, but also understanding how that fits in with what is it that they're looking for? Are they just simply doing a routine adjudication or an update? Or are they looking for something specific? For example, John, we sometimes talk on our show about the pre-existing condition clause. This is a very onerous clause. It's one that says that if you've got a disability within that first year that you've been covered and started a new job, and that disability claim relates to a health issue that you had either before you started your job or shortly after you started your job, and you're getting treatment for that condition, for example, then this clause, insurance companies like to use this clause as a sword to like say no, right? To, to say that your claim is not valid. We can rely on this pre-existing condition clause and we're not going to cover your otherwise valid disability claim. And when they do these pre-existing condition clause reviews, they will actually seek for a very expansive period of time for medical information. And so, and you know, people inevitably will ask, look, tomorrow, like they want like a year of medical info. Doesn't make sense. I'm like, I know, but it's because the policy says that year is the year that's relevant for this pre-existing condition clause. So if it's not a pre-existing condition, you might as well just provide it, have the insurance company check off that box so that they can then legitimately look at the disability that you're actually making a claim for and make a decision on that instead of spending time, wasting time looking at this pre-ex clause. So I think the context around this disability, mydisabilityquestions.com, John, is really important. I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, carte blanche, provide your records willy-nilly to the insurer in all instances. But generally speaking, I think the good outweighs sort of the harmful effects potentially of, you know, resisting providing these kinds of records to the insurer. This might be a good time to uh, to remind people that if you can, and, and do they have to release a copy of the policy to you so you can read through it? I mean, it's, it's got to be pretty boring to read through, but it's good to know what's what's governed in the policy about what you have to do in correspondence with the insurer, no? Absolutely, yes. It is a good uh, time to remind people that they are entitled to a copy of their disability policy. But interestingly enough, there's still people routinely saying, yeah, tomorrow I'm not getting a copy of it. I've asked for it. They're saying no. Now I'm getting the runaround. It's it's frustrating, but there's actually insurance act there's legislation in all the provinces we practice in that say specifically that if you put your request in writing to the insurance company for a copy of that policy, you are entitled to get a copy of it. Now, generally, it should be coming from your employer, so that's another source for you. You can just email your HR team and say, "Look, can I get a copy of the policy?" If there are questions around like the benefit calculation or what I was describing about a pre-existing condition clause, always helpful to just get that copy. And then if you're not sure, because you're right, John, it could be pages and pages of stuff. If you're not sure, just send it to one of us. Myself, anybody on our team, more than happy to review and take a look at it. Really straightforward stuff, especially if we're looking for something specific. So if you say to me, look, Tamar, uh, they're saying pre-ex, you know, what does this mean? You know, is this in my policy? Does this make sense? Are they saying the right thing? Happy to take a look at it. It will take literally a few minutes worth of time. And I can tell you right away, yep, no, it's there. And this is what it says. It's consistent with how they've analyzed your claim. Um, and also look at other avenues. You know, I, I recently came across one, John, where the denial letter in my client's claim had a 
policy wording reference that was different than what the policy actually said. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah. So the adjuster relied on a portion of the wording that they had obviously gotten from another policy or maybe another precedent denial letter. I don't even know. But they relied on a certain provision that actually didn't exist in the actual policy. (laughs) So you can see that, you know, this is why we do what we do, because you know, insurers will take improper bases to deny claims. And if you're not keeping them honest with looking at what their policies say and the adjudication, all that stuff, then sometimes people will accept what's being said. And I, I never want people to hear from me that you should just simply accept it. I think it's important to have that dialogue, questioning, get a copy of the policy, find out what your legal rights are, and then you can make some choices around what makes sense for you going forward. Always send it. Always let Tamara take a look at it for sure. Among other uh, matters you're dealing with that insurance company, email uh, first call help at disabilityrights.ca and just make the phone call. Otherwise, 1-855-821-5900. A few minutes to go. We'll try to get in a couple of reme- uh, more emails with the remaining time of the show, but uh, stick around. Lots more is on the way. Disability Law Show right here. Hang on. Welcome back, Disability Law Show. A few minutes to go, but that doesn't end there. You can always reach out to Tamar and her team. On Phone numbers always provided, right? 1-855-821-5900. The email address we go to, our default emails, help at disabilityrights.ca. And you have the option of mydisabilityquestions.com, free and anonymous website put together and built so you can ask your questions and get them answered there as well. Malika. So coming up next, Tamara says, hey, guys, I'm worried about how I'm going to pay my bills when my LTD benefits get cut off, when they get cut off. The insurance company said I can do another job earning minimum wage, and so my LTD benefits are ending in three months. My doctor disagrees, but the insurance company doesn't seem to care. I was already barely scraping by with just the LTD amount. Uh, I'm not sure what to do. Are there other benefits I can access? Really good question, Malika, and and I'm really sympathetic with these situations. It really hits home when I hear individuals, look, I can't even pay my bills, even just with the LTD benefit. Yeah, I mean, LTD is only a fraction of what most people were earning, you know, working fully, working at 100%. And so it is really, really tough. And so when people come to us and say, look, are there other resources, other financial supports that I can access? Absolutely. Yes, Malika, there are. And so what the starting point in my mind for most people, when they say to me, my doctor still thinks I can't work, is you really should consider a CPP disability application. Now, CPP disability has a different test. Uh, It has its own set of forms. It's a government-sponsored plan. It has a cap in terms of what you might qualify for. The average is about $1,000 a month, though. And it can take a few months to get approved, John. But it achieves a couple of goals. For one, it creates further medical support that someone like Malika is not capable of working. Just getting the doctor to complete the form and confirm that your conditions are preventing you from working, you know, it's a severe and prolonged disability, which is the test, by the way, for CPP, will help the LTD claim, I think, if Malika is in a situation where she wants to challenge and there's a good basis to challenge the disability insurer. So CPP disability is one. The one little catch to CPP disability is that the insurer, the disability insurer, can get a credit for whatever you might be entitled to for CPP disability. But if they've cut you off anyway or are cutting you off, you still need some kind of an income source. And if you're not capable of working and there's no work capacity, then you might as well start that process sooner rather than later in terms of accessing that CPP disability benefit. 
So that's the starting point for anyone who's listening across the country. It's a federal program. So anyone in Canada can access CPP disability. The other elements in terms of supporting individuals financially, if they are not getting their LTD benefits approved, could be both EI sickness benefits or some other government-sponsored provincial plans. So what comes to mind, John, is like the Ontario Disability Support Program or AISH, the Alberta uh, Support Program uh, for Handicapped Individuals. I I don't know why that word is still in the description of AISH, but it is. I know. Um, but, But both of those programs have similar profiles in that they are, again, government sponsored plans for individuals who have uh, disabilities preventing them from working. Uh, EI sickness is the same. Again, that's also Service Canada. EI sickness, interestingly, recently increased the number of weeks you can qualify for. I think it went from 15 weeks to 26 weeks, which is pretty good. Uh, I mean, it's still, again, a fraction of a fraction of what typically people would get as a regular salary. But it's a it's a gap that's payable. And it's payable probably with the same medical information that you submitted to the LTD insurer. And EI sickness is not usually a credit or a deduction from LTD, sometimes short term, but not long term. So EI sickness is a good one. I think that the one with H and ODSP, though, the government, Ontario or, you know, Alberta sponsored ones, those ones sometimes can have uh, income threshold requirements. In other words, you cannot have certain amount of assets in order to qualify, which sometimes can be tough if you own a home or a vehicle or some other assets. And it can be repayable sometimes if you do end up getting uh, income or LTD benefits down the road. So bear that in mind, Malika, as you're sort of trying to navigate. And there's a really good memo on our website. Uh, John will tell, will remind me of the, of the, I think it's LTDFAQ.ca. That's right. .ca. Thank you, John. LTDFAQ.ca. There's a really good memo on there that details all of these different government supports, what's required, who can qualify. Really great summary. Just click download and you can see all of them across the country that may be applicable to you. And I would say access those. But the bottom line really for Malika is I think there could be a basis for a legal claim against the insurance company. So I don't want her to hesitate to try and bring that forward. Yes, it takes a bit of time, but if she's able to sustain financially with these other government supports, allow us a little bit of time to try and move the needle with the insurer. I have a feeling that with her doctor's support that we'd be successful in getting a really good resolution for her and then hopefully put some compensation together to alleviate some of the concerns that she's had. Malika, thank you so much for that uh, last email of the show. Moving forward, that phone call, which you're probably going to make anyway, one 821 5900 You can use that as well if you've tuned in for the last hour. Appreciate that. And that email address we always use again one more time, help at disabilityrights.ca. Another form for questions is the free and anonymous mydisabilityquestions.com. And yeah, Tamar mentioned it one more time. Free, easy to read, concise, non-legalese written memos about LTD, variety of topics, really simple to navigate this site, ltdfaq.ca. Good stuff. We'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show.